When you know what is right by instruction, example, experience, or conscience, those four ways, you are accountable to do what is right. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Daniel 5, uh, Daniel 5, as you know, we're in a study in the book of Daniel. Last week, we finished chapter 4, which, as you recall, records the humbling and the restoration of, uh, and the conversion, actually, of King Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind and thought he was an animal for seven years, and the Lord restored him when he humbled himself. The events of Daniel 5, which we're going to study today, take place 23 years after last week's lesson. So between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, there's a 23-year gap. Daniel is not consecutive. We'll talk a little more about that last week, or next week. So the period between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, the events of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 happen. So Lord willing, we'll get to that here in a few weeks. So Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 have occurred after Daniel 4, and in them God reveals to Daniel that Babylon is going to be overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. And of course, today we're going to talk about that event that occurred. Uh, Daniel undoubtedly had also studied the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which also prophesied the overthrow of one empire and the introduction of another And we read this as though it's history, but we have all lived in the same empire for the last 245 years. Babylon lasted less than a century, and there was a turnover. Empire turnovers can be very um, chaotic affairs. Hanging onto your head during those periods of time can be interesting. So this is more than just history. It, It actually occurs around the world. We happen to live in the longest stable democracy on planet Earth at this point in time. And so for us, it's um, somewhat academic, but believe me, it's not academic when you're going through it. Let me give you the big picture of what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar's father was named Nabopolassar, and he was the founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and he reigned from 627 B.C. to 605 B.C. And he died, and he conquered the Assyrian Empire, the capital of Nineveh, in about 612. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, took over at his death in 605, and he reigned for 43 years. Pretty long king, right? From 605 to 652, or 562. Nebuchadnezzar's son was named Amel Marduk, also known as Evil Merodach, E-V-I-L, literally. He reigned two years, from 562 to 560. He was murdered in August of 560 by his brother-in-law. You think he got bad relationships? This was not a happy family. His brother-in-law was named Nereglissar, and he had married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. We know this from Jeremiah 39. Nereglissar was killed in battle after four years, from 560 to 556, and his youngest son, named Labishi Meraduk, he reigned for two months, and he was murdered by a group of conspirators led by Nabonidus. Now, that's four kings in six years. So between wars and assassinations, you didn't need term limits in Babylon. I mean, (laughs) they just kind of took care of it, right? So Nabonidus, who reigned for 17 years, did not come from royal descent. Back in the day, if you were the son of a king or the grandson of a king, you had an inside track to inherit the throne. So in order to cement his dynasty, I guess, he married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters uh, back in 585, and he fathered his oldest son named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the king of Daniel chapter 5, which we're going to be talking about then. So Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king in power. Now, Nabonidus was not a popular king. 
in the empire. He championed the worship of the moon god Sin, literally S-I-N, heck of a name for a moon god, right? And the, the, the priesthood, the Babylonian priesthood, they favored the traditional gods of Babylon, Marduk, Bel-Marduk, and things like that. So Nabonidus spent a lot of time out of the kingdom. He reigned 17 years, and he spent 10 years not even in the empire. He lived most of the life, 10 years at least, and most of the time in northern Arabia. He wasn't even in Babylon. So in 553, he appointed his son Belshazzar to be co-regent. That means like king one and king two. Co-regent means you shared the throne. You shared the power of the throne because Nabonidus wanted somebody on site in Babylon to keep an eye on things. So Nabonidus is still alive, living in northern Arabia. His son Belshazzar is in Babylon, reigning with his father. Now, for years and years and years, we couldn't find, secular historians couldn't find any record of this king named Belshazzar. So therefore, there was a lot of poo-pooing the biblical record, and they said, well, you know, the Bible's obviously incorrect because we couldn't find any record of Belshazzar. Well, today we have more than three dozen ancient texts that refer to Belshazzar, the co-regency with his father Nabonidus, so it's pretty well established. By the way, Belshazzar, the name means Bel, protect the king. That's after their chief god was Belmarda. That was the chief god of the Babylonians. So, before the events in chapter 5, which we're going to study today, Cyrus, king of Persia, had allied with Cyaxes to his uncle. So uncle, who's the king of the Medes, and Cyrus, king of the Persians, they get together, the Medes and the Persians, and they start taking out nations in that region, and they expand the empire, the Persian empire, dramatically. When we open chapter 5, which we're going to study now, Babylon, the city, is under siege. The Medes and Persians have conquered the region, and they now have surrounded the city. And King Belshazzar decides to throw a party. Chapter 5 is the record of that party. That's what we're going to open tonight. Verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast, that means party, for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that his wives, his nobles, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the kings, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, those are just four verses. But if you read between the lines, the picture is not encouraging, shall we say. Here's the principle. If you're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you're under the influence of this world and its lies. By the way, I reworded that. There was a number of things I could have said there. But if you're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you are under the influence of the world and its lies. Now, Oriental kings, Middle Eastern kings as well, love to display their wealth. And they had lavish parties and huge long-lasting celebrations. The book of Esther, by the way, records in chapter 1 that the Persian king Ahasuerus threw a party that lasted 180 days. Six months. Alexander the Great invited 10,000 guests to a wedding. You think your wedding was expensive? Yes, right. Just, it's all relative. The Greek historian Herodotus records that this feast, this party, was held either to honor the gods of Babylon or to celebrate Belshazzar's birthday, or maybe both. The Persian army is camped outside the gates. The city is under siege. But the Babylonians felt pretty confident that they were going to be able to withstand this siege. The city walls, they had a complex of walls, in some cases double walls, were 75 feet high, 
85 feet wide. They had bronze gates were barred. The drawbridges were drawn up. They had several years of provisions. And the Euphrates River ran through the town from north to south, brought water into the city, so you couldn't starve them out. In addition, the city encompassed such an area they had tillable land. They could actually grow crops inside the city. So most of the Persians were pretty confident. They were worried, and so Belshazzar threw a party to encourage their patriotic spirits. You know, we want to juice up the crowd and get them confident and uh, take their minds off the invading army of the Medes and Persians. Nothing like a party to take your mind off reality, right? Well, that's what this was all about. So he threw it in this large hall, and we've excavated that hall. Archaeologists have excavated the remains of what's the throne room of the Babylonian kings. It was their principal audience chamber. It's a very large hall, 55 feet wide and about 175 feet long. So it's a big, big hall. And the brick walls in this hall were plastered over with white gypsum. So it was a white wall, white ceiling, obviously. Before you had um, spotlights like this, you wanted everything as white as possible to keep it as light as possible. So when you walked in the hall, opposite the, the main door on the back wall, there was a recessed niche pushed back, and it was raised up. And on that raised niche... On the back wall, where everybody could see, was the throne. And that's where the king sat to make sure they were visible to everybody. Now, when it says things like a great feast, tasted the wine, that means they were drunker than skunks. This place, they were drinking to excess. They were under the influence. The word drink here, by the way, implies continuous drinking. It's, it's an ongoing uh, current. So they were stuck on stupid. Now, at the beginning of the banquet, it says only men were present because it says a thousand lords, males. But it seems clear as the temple vessels were brought in, the women came in with them, out of wives and concubines, plural. So this is not, um, you get the picture. Uh, alcohol impairs judgment, have you noticed? So when Belshazzar's drinking, he calls for the gold and silver vessels from the Jewish temple to be brought in so they could use them to raise a toast to the gods of Babylon. That was the whole point. Now, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar had never done this. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, and he conquered many nations, but he always respected the gods of the nations he conquered. And so he never abused those religious symbols. He literally would conquer the nation's gods, plunder their temples to demonstrate that the Babylonian gods were stronger than your gods. That's why we conquered you, because you have weak gods. And they would take all the treasures of the temple, and he'd bring them back to Babylon, and he'd put them in storage. So he obviously had some respect for the religions of the people, and he allowed people to govern themselves as well. Belshazzar had no such restraint. Now, God had commanded that these vessels were sacred. They were only to be handled by priests. Many of these vessels were not even allowed to be touched by the Levites. Some of them carried the blood of solemn sacrifices. So the picture is you've got pagan Gentiles drinking out of God's holy vessels. They're at a drunken orgy, and they're using them to praise false gods. It's hard to picture anything more uh, insulting. Actually, it was calculated to insult and ridicule the God of Israel, and to exalt the Babylonians' false gods. By the way, Jeremiah had prophesied this event in Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah is talking by God's command about Babylon, and he says, quote, I will make her leaders and her wise men drunk, her governors, officials, and her warriors, so that they will sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. So Belshazzar is desecrating God's holy vessels to demonstrate the superiority of the Babylonian gods over Yahweh, the God of Israel. Obviously, we conquered you people, so therefore your God is pretty worthless. He's arrogant, he's drunk, and he's surrounded by a crowd that's arrogant and drunk. The people at this group are the power brokers. These are the movers and shakers. This is the upper crust elite of Babylonian society at this point in time, and they think that they and their gods are invincible. 
It's likely that this praise of Babylonian gods also involves a petition, an intercession, a request, if you will, for the gods of Babylon to rescue them from the invading Persian army. By the way, proud people often fall for the same reason they drown in a rainstorm. They are up like this, their heads are so high, the rain just comes in and they drown, right? And they fail to look at their feet, and then they trip over their feet and fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let the one who thinks they stand pay heed, take heed, watch out, lest they fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. When the megaship, the Titanic, was launched in 1912, it's reported that someone said, quote, not even God can sink this ship, unquote. And we know anything built by man can sink, right? Here's what's fascinating. The belief that the Titanic was unsinkable influenced the decisions that later, in fact, led to its sinking. Because they thought it was unsinkable, they took chances and they took risks that they wouldn't have had they been a little more humble about the sinkability of this ship. Think about it. It's, can you conceive of a king of a city that's under siege, who's throwing a party and getting drunk, instead of being armed on the walls with all the leaders alert to every danger, and the city on high alert. Wouldn't you think, given the circumstances of a siege, that a proper sober defense would be prudent? It's interesting that the distraction of this party was the very event that allowed the Persians to take the city by surprise and conquer it without a battle. Verse 5 records God crashing their party. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. We have this proverb, can't you see the handwriting on the wall? This is where it came from, right? It refers to impending doom. Babylonian hands have taken God's holy vessels and a display of contempt put them to dishonorable use. Now God's hands show up and write on the wall a message of judgment. It's patently obvious to this pagan crowd when you see a hand writing on the wall that something supernatural is going on. The room was lit by torches. They didn't have electric light bulbs. And they had a lamp stand right next to the throne in this research niche. And that lamp was the one that illuminated the handwriting behind the throne. Finger writing. It says the walls were plastered. We talked about that white gypsum. So this was like a white chalkboard behind the king. So you could really make out the fact that there was a hand doing some writing. It made it easier to see. Now when the king saw the fingers writing... This drunken party came to a screeching halt. Needless to say, everybody came deathly silent. It said the king was so terrified that the blood drained from his face. He just turned white as a ghost, just pale. It says his thoughts alarmed him. In the face of the supernatural, every time it's recorded in Scripture, people become weak and they become convicted of sin. His guilty conscience, seems pretty clear to me, began to convict him of sin. It seems that he had risen to his feet to turn around to see the handwriting on the wall, and it says he became so frightened he became incontinent. When they say your hip joints became slack, that's a nice way of saying he lost control. His legs gave way, he fell to the floor, and in terror he cries out for the wise men to interpret what in the world's going on, verse 7. The king called aloud, he cried aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed in purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8, then all the king's men came in, but 
they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Nebelshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Here's the principle. God's wisdom is available, but you must humble yourself and ask for it. God's wisdom is available, but you must humble yourself and ask for it. Belshazzar is terrifically frightened, and we know he's frightened because he promised prestige, position, power, wealth to anyone who can interpret the handwriting on the wall. By the way, purple in that era was very, very difficult to come by. The color was typically worn by royalty. A necklace of pure gold was obviously enormously expensive. And this promise of the third ruler in a kingdom was misunderstood by historians for years. They, they decried the efficacy or the authenticity of Daniel because it didn't make any sense. If you understand that Nabonius is the king and Belshazzar, his son, is the co-regent, then the third ruler is the third ruler after Nabonidus, after Belshazzar. You get to be the number three in authority. So that was the promise that was positioned or promised to him. Now this writing was in Aramaic. And they, Aramaic was the lingua fraca of the realm. It was the language of the realm. Remember, Aramaic and Hebrew all are read from right to left, not left to right. And in some cases back then, they read top to bottom. So you would look at it and you would not make sense of it at this point in time because it wasn't left to right at that point in time. But they understood that. The wise men of Babylon were unable to read the writing or interpret what it meant. When you read the book of Daniel, you'll always see the wisdom of man shown as ineffective. They remind me of Humpty Dumpty. What does it say? All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Unaided human wisdom is absolutely incomprehensibly foolish, and cannot comprehend God's thoughts or actions because they do not have the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 gives us one of the most succinct blessings of following Jesus Christ. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. But a natural man, that is not a follower of Jesus, one who is not converted, regenerated, does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him because he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You're going to run into a lot of people who do not understand that they read the Bible and they go, Whoa, I got nothing out of it. Well, some of it's lazy. You know, you're going to read it for two minutes and expect to get enlightened. You need to spend some time. Number two, you read it and you don't ask for help. You don't say, Lord, this is your word. The Holy Spirit wrote it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open my mind to understand it. You have the capacity to comprehend it because you have the Spirit of God living in you, and they don't, right? So throughout the book of Daniel, you see human wisdom being shown to be completely inadequate, and the reason is they do not have the Spirit of God, and Daniel obviously does. Because the wise men, quote, wise men of Babylon, rejected God's will, rejected God's way, they thought the God of Israel was foolish and weak and ineffective. Obviously, you people got conquered, so therefore, what do you have to say to us? However, God wrote what he wrote on the wall, 
in such a way that the wise men of this world were the ones who were demonstrated to be fools. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, verse 25 of chapter 1, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. One of the things we see in our culture today is tremendous uh, belief in the wisdom of humanity to solve the problems and continual disappointment in the inability of human wisdom to solve human problems. That's by design. There is no solution for the problems caused by sin other than by God himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when the wise men could not explain the writing to him, it says Belshazzar, believe it or not, became even more terrified. His nobles were baffled and the party degenerated into confusion, which means a mob. Now apparently the sounds of this panicked crowd made their way to the ears of the queen and she enters the banquet hall. Now the queen is not Belshazzar's wife. He's got multiple wives and concubines and they're already there at the party. This was probably the queen mother, the mother of Belshazzar, the wife of Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father. She's probably a surviving daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she was obviously a woman of rank and authority because she comes into the room and she takes over. She doesn't, she just says her mind. She advises her son to stop fearing. She says, there's a man in your kingdom named Daniel who can read and interpret this, so stop being afraid. And by the way, Daniel was appointed chief of the wise men by Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Now, understand that when we're talking about father-son relationships, the word in the Bible, father, often means ancestor. And the word son often means descendant. It doesn't necessarily mean one generation. You can have multiple generations between a father and a son. Jesus is considered the son of David. Well, there's dozens of generations between David and Jesus. Abraham is considered the father of the Jews, and there's hundreds of generations of Jewish descendants who say, I am a son of Abraham, but that's multiple generations. So when he says in the days of your father, it doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar was your father. We're pretty sure that, Neb that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but I wanted to explain that so you understand. He's a bloodline descendant, but it's not his literal dad. And the queen says, she describes Daniel in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar does. He possesses a spirit of the holy gods. Now she does not confess that Daniel's God is the God most high like Nebuchadnezzar did. She's still a polytheist. She's a believer in multiple gods. But she speaks as though she's been an eyewitness to Daniel's activities in years gone by. I mean, she, the description of Daniel coming out of her mouth is extraordinary. He possesses an extraordinary spirit. He possesses knowledge and insight. He possesses the ability to interpret dreams. He can solve enigmas and enigmas, however you want to pronounce it. He can solve difficult problems. I mean, who would not want somebody like that on your staff? Right? If you could hire somebody like this, you would do it in a heartbeat. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did, right? He was his prime minister, which means he was the chief executive officer of the government at that point in time. Daniel must have been very active in Nebuchadnezzar's government for his activities to become this well-known 23 years later, and remember, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I have personally heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, Keep your gifts for yourselves or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Here's the principle. No one can serve two masters. 
You will not speak God's truth if you seek man's favor. No one can serve two masters. You will not speak God's truth if you seek man's favor. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Y'all know that proverb? If Daniel was trying to collect a reward, he would not say what he's going to say. It's clear that he only serves the Lord and he's not going to be bought or bribed by human rewards. What is incredible here is that Belshazzar has been co-regent for 14 years. From Babylon, he resides in Babylon and he's not even yet met the most competent person in the entire government. He had to be introduced to Daniel, even though Daniel's lived in Babylon for 65 years. What it tells you is that Daniel probably hadn't been that active in government in the period of Nabonidus or Belshazzar. He was very active with Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, that doesn't necessarily surprise you. Nebuchadnezzar's been dead now for 23 years. We're not sure what advisory roles Daniel had in the following years probably called on only intermittently and probably only called on when they had a problem they couldn't fix. So he was called on when they had an emergency. Wicked rulers do not generally want to hear from righteous people because it convicts their conscience. In the same way, people that are actively involved in sin don't want your opinion about what they should do because you'll tell them what God says and they don't want to hear what God says. When I was actively sinning as a late teenager in early 20s, I didn't want nothing to do with God's people. I knew what they were going to tell me. I didn't want to hear it. We do the same thing. By the way, when someone's theology changes, it's because their morality already changes. When someone starts giving you a different theology and God is... Oh, God is tolerant of my sin, blah, blah. It means they're already involved in sin. Now they have to figure out a theology to justify it. So that's when they start compromising what God's word says because they justify their sin. Daniel, however, even though he was out of public view, was faithful in his private life, and so he was faithful in his public life. We're going to find out a little bit more about that next week, Lord willing. So Belshazzar has just heard about Daniel from his queen mother, and he says, are you... That Daniel, that Daniel with all the reputation? He says, are you that captive, one of those exiles that my father captured? So he's kind of putting him down there, you know? In other words, you serve a weak God because we, we've got your stuff. We've got your temple stuff right here, as a matter of fact. However, if you interpret the, you know, the, the dream, the writing, I'll, I'll reward you. Of course, Daniel refused the reward because the interpretation would come from God. One of the things you'll see in the book of Daniel is Daniel never takes credit for what God does. It's a good lesson for us. We should never stand in the way between what God is doing and the people he's doing it for. Let God get the glory. Let God get the credit. It only belongs to him. Verse 18. Now Daniel is going to speak truth to power. We hear that around. Oh, I speak truth to power. Well, this is Holy Spirit truth to secular power. Verse 18. O king. The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wished, he killed. Whoever he wished, he spared alive. Whoever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he became that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it, whomever he wishes. Verse 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, 
and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. Here's the principle. When you know what is right, by instruction, example, experience, or conscience, those four ways, you are accountable to do what is right. When you know what is right, by whatever way you know what is right, experience, instruction, example, or conscience, you're accountable to do what's right. Now, Belshazzar was arrogant, but he was not ignorant. However, he needs a refresher course in history. And Daniel's going to remind him of the lessons that God taught his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar unlimited sovereign rule. He had no opposition to his human rule. He literally was the law. He was accountable to no one. If I want you dead, you're dead. If I want you alive, you're alive. If I want you promoted, you're promoted. If I want you demoted, you're demoted. And no one said anything. Except when he became proud, he behaved arrogantly toward God. Then God took away his majesty, took away his monarchy, took away his mind. Behaved like an animal, got kicked out of the palace, lived outdoors like an animal, ate grass like an animal for seven years. And only when he humbled himself before God did God restore his mind and his kingdom. And then one of the most astonishing passages, the last four or five verses of chapter 4, we have this pagan secular king declares his undivided loyalty and worship of Almighty God. We will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, I believe. Now that's the history lesson. Now Daniel brings the indictment to Belshazzar. And he's very forthright and direct. He says, you knew the example of your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, and yet you committed the same sin of pride with knowledge. By the way, knowledge never saved anybody. Satan's the most knowledgeable creature that God ever created, and his destiny is the lake of fire. Not for lack of knowledge, but for lack of humility. This says something to us, just a byline here, that we are accountable not only to learn the lessons of history, but to follow them. There is no excuse for ignorance when you have history as your teacher. And this land is indicted, the one we live in now, because of our abysmal failure to learn from the lessons of history that God has taught us. And to be willfully ignorant is no excuse before God. As a matter of fact, it is doubly uh, condemned because you had the opportunity to know and you chose to sin with full knowledge. If you don't tremble for this nation, you do not understand the holiness of God. Belshazzar is behaving like his father, the devil. He's exalted himself against the Lord of heaven because pride is always a declaration of war against Almighty God. He made the conscious decision with full knowledge to desecrate the sacred vessels of the temple, to show his contempt for the God of Israel, and to demonstrate the superiority of the captive gods, and Daniel says, look, these gods you worship, these little idols, there's no breath, there's no life, there's no cognition, there's no hearing, no thinking, and you praise them, and you are breathing Yahweh's air. And your life breath is in his hands, and him you will not praise. It makes no logical sense. But remember, sin doesn't make sense. Never. Belshazzar's pride caused him to believe Satan's lie. By the way, people who believe Satan's lies want to be deceived. It is a conscious decision I want to be lied to. Tell me, you know, delicious lies rather than hard truth. And God sends Nebuchadnezzar now a message of judgment. Verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him, God, and this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. 
Mene, mene, tikel, yuparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. This is Daniel speaking now. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Here's the principle. God's patience with sinners has an expiration date. Someday the opportunity for salvation will end and judgment will begin. God's patience with sinners has an expiration date. Someday the opportunity for salvation will end and judgment will begin. That's why scriptures always says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance, right? God is very patient. But there is a point where grace ends and judgment begins. Let's unpack this. Mene, mene, repeated twice. It's an Aramaic noun that refers to a weight, 50 shekels. In the New Testament, it's called a mina, M-I-N-A. There's a couple of parables about a mina. A mina, it weighs about one and a quarter pounds. So this is a weight of measurement, right? 50 shekels, usually in coinage, but it's talking about literally the verb form means to number, to assess, to count, to reckon. So mene, mene means counted, assessed, reckoned, or numbered. Tekel, or tekel, it's a noun referring to a shekel. A shekel is two-fifths of an ounce. And the verb form of this uh, tekel means to weigh or assess. And the word peres, um, by the way, is the singular of the word eupharsin. Eupharsin is the plural of that. Peres is singular. And it refers to a half a mina, which is 25 shekels, about two-thirds of a pound. And it comes from a verb which means to break in two, to divide or to break in two. So you interpret this, what it's saying is all kingdoms, all empires, and all individuals have a lifespan, which is preset by God. Psalm 139 says, the days of your life are preset before you're born. The same is true of empires and nations. They have a birth date, and they have a date where they cease to exist, and God's in control of both individuals and empires. Number two, God judges and weighs everything according to his holy standards, not ours. Every person will face Jesus Christ after death, either as Savior or judge. If you reject Jesus Christ, Revelation 20 says you're going to stand before him as judge, the great right throne, if you accept Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4 says you're going to stand before the Bama Seat of Christ. Not for salvation judgment, that's done at the cross, but for rewards. So we're all going to stand before Christ. If you're unfaithful with what God has entrusted you like Belshazzar was, God may take it away and give it to somebody else who is faithful. So his gifts you're responsible to manage well under his authority. God's interventions in human affairs, by the way, are designed to accomplish his purposes, not our purposes. Babylon had served God's purpose. We talked about that last week. Their purpose was to discipline Israel by capturing them and bringing them in captivity for 70 years to discipline them for their disobedience and then release them to go back home. They filled that purpose. But because of their ongoing evil, God replaced them with the medial Persian Empire in order to fulfill the next part of God's plan. At the end of his life, interestingly enough, Solomon, Scripture says, was the wisest man who ever lived. He summarized the bottom line of human life. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. These are the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, which was the last book that he wrote before his death at about age 60. The conclusion... When all has been heard, at the, in the contemporary, say, look, the bottom line, at the end of the day, this is what counts. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Four, why should you fear God and keep his commandments? Verse 14, God will bring every act into judgment. Not just the visible one. Everything which is hidden, which means our thought life, whether it is good 
or whether it is evil. Which means we're accountable to Almighty God for everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, right? And we need to live in light of the reality that we'll stand before God. Now, for us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we have an advocate. We come before the throne, and the Satan is going to accuse us. Boy, look at the sin they did. Jesus said, bought and paid for. I paid for that sin. I bought them with my blood. We have an advocate, and that gives us confidence to stand before God, the book of Hebrew tells us. Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he was now had authority as the third ruler in a kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. One of the things you're going to notice about Scripture, if you haven't already, it's very economical. I mean, God puts things in one sentence. You could spend your lifetime unpacking the distilled essence of those sentences. Interestingly enough, Belshazzar kept his word and rewarded Daniel. Of course, they were meaningless to Daniel. Number one, he couldn't be bribed. Number two, he knew that Babylon was finished. That very night... This all took place right here, this chapter, October 12, 539 B.C. Babylon fell either the 11th or 12th, we're not sure, of October 539 B.C. That very night, very likely within hours of this party, the city was taken and Belshazzar was slain. The opportunity to repent was gone. Now, the river Euphrates ran underneath the walls of Babylon entered from the north and exited from the south. So they had a water supply uh, year-round. And Cyrus had his troops dig a channel upstream and divert the Euphrates River into a marsh. The Euphrates River usually was over your head, and they diverted enough water to where the water in the river was mid-thigh. And so the troops just came under the walls. The water was only mid-thigh, so you didn't have to swim under there, right? There was airspace you could get under the city walls through the riverbed because the water was so low, and it was taken by surprise without a major battle. As a matter of fact, Herodotus records that the city was celebrating and partying to the point in time most of the people didn't even figure out the city was taken, in some cases, for three days. I mean, you can lose sovereignty like that. You can lose your life like that. God demonstrates his sovereign control over the realm of mankind. So you say, well, okay, Brad, I got all this, so what? It's really important to understand that God is sovereign over empires as well as individuals. There is nothing going on in our world today that God is not sovereignly in control of. He's doing things to accomplish his purposes. Do we understand them? No, only partially. His ways are higher than our ways. He's obviously infinite. But you need to be reassured that no matter what's going on in the realm of humankind, God is in complete control. God never runs around and goes, oops, I never saw that coming. (laughs) Never. You may look at this world and say, man, things are really falling apart. Yep, and God's in control of everything. Your security does not depend on you living in a functional democracy. If the church of Jesus Christ would have depended on the Roman Empire, we wouldn't have survived the 4th century. God does what God does with his people, and empires come and empires go, and they're going to keep coming and going. The church of Jesus Christ will be built by Jesus Christ himself, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So stop fearing. Okay, let's review, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, if you're not under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you're under the influence of something else, the world, and you're being lied to. And by the way, every day you choose what influence you're going to be under. Even as Christians, you'd say, who am I going to listen to today? Who's going to influence my thinking today? Who am I going to believe today? That's why you start the day with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Number two, 
God's wisdom is available, but you must humble yourself and ask for it. The book of James says you don't have because you don't ask. And we don't ask because we think we already have it figured out. Marin reminds me over and over again, you need to ask, right? Number three, no one can serve two masters. You will not speak God's truth if you seek man's approval or man's favor. Know who your master is and serve that one and only that one. Number four, when you know what is right, by instruction, somebody taught you, by example, you saw somebody else live good or bad, by experience, you got scar tissue from your own folly or good stuff, or by conscience, the Holy Spirit speaking to you from the inside, we're always accountable to do what's right. And lastly, we need to live in light of the fact that this life is short. God's patience with sinners has an expiration date. Someday the opportunity for salvation will end and judgment will begin. This is the beginning of a new year. I don't know how you're going to spend this year. I'm going to encourage you to invest it. You have 168 hours a week. You're going to swap those hours for something. Every week I see you here, you will have swapped 168 hours for something. So will have I. The question is, what did you get in exchange for the 168 hours you traded away? What do you have to show for it? See, God wants you to trade that 168 hours for something that's got eternal value. And we've got an opportunity to do that. I'm excited about 22. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.